this series called um, Truth Has No Boundaries, and we've been spending time, we've been spending a couple of weeks on Judaism and then Christianity and then Islam, and then we moved out of the Abrahamic faiths and a little further west, and now we're starting with Hinduism. And we had a message last week on Hinduism, and one of the things, Cheyenne, that we talked about last week was where Hinduism comes from, like this space that it grows out of. And we talked a little bit about the history. I don't want to belabor that point, but this is the area where you can kind of see the space where this religion that we call Hinduism today came out of. And this red arrow that you see that crosses the Indus River is kind of a path of what they think was the migration of a group of people called the Indo-Aryans. And so what most historians think happened that leads to the flourishing and population of what we know as India and the development of Hinduism is that Indo-Aryans, which are suspected to be kind of Central Asians, what we would think of as like probably Russians um, in terms of geopolitical states that exist now, make their way into this space that we identify as India. And in that space, there are a group of people already living there, they believe, called Dravidians. And so the India that we know today, they think, becomes a result of these Indo-Aryans coming into this space, migrating past the Indus River and into India, modern India, and meeting these this group of Dravidians and then intermarrying and what they do is they bring a religious um, component and these indo-aryans and their religion end up merging with dravidians did you say boo i did boo that anyone bringing religion into the mix i thought you said we know the party's about it's an interesting uh, we know all the fun (laughs) we know all the fun's gonna leave now so these two groups end up merging and over time forming what we now identify as Hinduism, although that's not what it was called when they were doing it. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the time that this happens. We think it was 1500 to 2000 BCE. So what's unique about that is it's happening all around the same time that Abraham and Judaism is really getting traction and a foothold. I do want to share something with you guys because we talk about Hinduism, which is not really an indigenous name for these religious practices that people on uh, the subcontinent of India practice. But also, India is not the name, the, can we say indigenous name, the name indigenous to this subcontinent area. And there's kind of a, I don't know, I don't want to call it a trend, but there's a little bit of a movement to call this space of India what it had been called, which is Bharata. Um, and so I have this When is this? Little, Same time. Little slide. Well, the space that we call India would have been called Bharata for hundreds, if not thousands of years um, prior to it gaining kind of a new, more Western name. And this name, remember, comes out of Persians and then Greeks coming into the space Mm -hmm. and hearing people refer to Sindhu, right? And then thinking that they're saying Hindu and then calling it Hindu 
and that becoming India. Yeah, you can't just like Google a word and be like, pronounce this for me. And we're all going to say it the same way. No. It's, it didn't Ever. happen back then. Yeah. And so as new people come into this space, they're trying to learn language. They're trying to learn culture. And the Westerners uh, end up kind of butchering it. Uh, but the indigenous name, the more authentic name probably to that space would be Barata. And I bring that up because the thing that we call Hinduism, the thing we understand as Hinduism, also isn't the original name for this kind of faith practice that we're studying. The name that's more authentic to what we're talking about is this name right here, Sanatana Dharma, which means eternal truth. And so people that we identify as practicing Hinduism would talk about this as their faith practice. Last week I asked you guys, it was kind of a trick question, but that's the fun of it. Is Hinduism pantheistic, polytheistic, or monotheistic? And then I said, well, maybe we can make an argument that it's all three in different ways. Which you can. But you can also make an argument that it's henotheistic, which means that it accepts all forms. Okay. Um, I don't want to use the term relativistic, but that it allows for your experience to be one that brings a perception, a knowledge, an experience of God and doesn't tell you where you're wrong. This is the way I feel. This is the way I, I operate. I know this is your jam. This is my jam. Right, as I was getting ready for this. And we're going to talk about the texts yeah. and how they explain what this really means. So if that's of interest to you at all, just hang on because yeah. we're going to get there. Okay. We're going to get there. We might get there. We, we might. We I got until 7.30-ish. These are the kinds of books that we talked about as forming the sacred literature for Hinduism. Um, the Vedas, Upanishads, Smriti, and the Puranas. And there are four... What do I want to say here? There's a kind of ethic or a kind of ethos that comes out of this practice and these books. And these four components are very important to the practice of Hinduism. Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha. Dharma is like your responsibility, your, your duty, your gift. Your purpose. Your purpose. John Hill says 8 o'clock. <laughs> no, I will beat that. If we're lucky, John. If we're lucky. So Artha and Kama are different. Um, Artha would be... How do I describe this? Artha would be a component of like of living that involves um, your job uh, or or your your wealth, like the things that you um, get something out of functionally, practically each day. Kama would be your desire, right? This is why the Kama Sutra is a series of sutras or sayings about desire. Right. And then moksha is this idea of liberation. And so you're trying to find the flow of these principles of the eternal truth. Um, and and that is the practice. The texts are ki can be kind of divided up into these other four. Is that what you were saying? Yes. The yeah. Vedas, Upanishads, Smriti, and Puranas. Yeah, can be categorized with like these different 
subcategories. Yeah, these are like classes of books. The Vedas come first beginning around <clears throat> 1500 and then written over hundreds of years. And as we talked about last week, they make Christian literature look just microscopic, mm -hmm. incredibly, incredibly, incredibly small. And here's something that I want to make a point out of, because this is what we're going to get into in our message tonight. Coming out of these books and coming out of this practice, one of the things that's very important to people within the Hindu community is this understanding of Dharma. Are you out of here? I'm almost out of here. I was so light. Did you not well, see me almost like Hulk smash this off the table? That's sad. If you need to get up and get a drink, any of you, like at I any do. time, if you need to get up and get a drink, help yourselves, for real. All right, Cheyenne's leaving. So here is the caste system that we talked about last week. The Brahmin all the way down to the Shudras and the different jobs that they have. We discussed a little bit of that, of this last week. Now, here's something that I find interesting. Within the Hindu literature and within him, Hindu teaching, you'll see that Brahman, Vaishyas, Shudras are referred to as like different parts of the body. This is not entirely unlike what Paul says in, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about different gifts that people have, right? Not everybody has the same gift. And he encourages people like, find your gift. Find what your strength is. Strength finders. That's what this is. It's just strength finders. Find your gift and pursue your gift in a way that is good and benefits everybody. So the caste system comes out of the Vedas as this intention for everybody to kind of find their place. Find what you're called to do. It becomes very rigid and becomes a system that you can't get out of. But No, it's definitely not find what you want to do, American dream. In well, not exactly that either, because in Hinduism, they believe that your karma from a prior life has you born back in at a space, right, where you're supposed to be. And then you're supposed to kind of accept where you come in and then do that job. So that's interesting because there's a point in the Gospels where the disciples actually ask Jesus about a blind man. Why is he blind? Right. Is he blind because he did something? He sinned. Now, if he's born blind, then how would that work unless you there's a reincarnation element here, right? He's come back and he's done something previously that makes him blind in this lifetime. Or they say, is this the, is, they don't say karma, but is this because of his parents and something his parents did? Yeah, yeah. And Jesus says, well, it's, yeah, it's not any of that. Right. You got it all wrong. Yeah. Um, but they do ask. But they do ask. They do ask. And that's part of it. Yeah, okay. Also in the Gospels, um, they ask questions about John the Baptist and think that he might be Elijah. You know, who is this guy? Like, mm -hmm. who are these people, these teachers? Are they... Is this Elijah coming back? Now, why is that in there? Because mm -hmm. how could it possibly be Elijah? Um, and I'm not telling you that reincarnation is a fundamental principle of Judaism or Christianity. Right. But it is an interesting Alluded part of our to. own scripture. Yes. 
That could seem alluded to. Because those conversations. Yes. They happen. I mean, they're in there. Uh-oh. They've lost your mic. Okay. <laughs> they did that now on purpose. They were, they were tired of hearing me, so they turned me off. Not true. Never true. Never true. I didn't want them to... <laughs> I do hit my mic quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So within this understanding of Dharma, right, of responsibility, of your flow, your specific special gifts, there is a subgroup that you can call the untouchables. That's sometimes what they're referred to. Um, but in India, years past, this group of people um, which were thought to, to develop because maybe the shudras became too big and so they had to form a different class. So they form a different class of, again, I don't like the word untouchables, but um, the, I'm going to use this word instead because this is the word they use. Okay. It's Dalit. Okay. And so these Dalit. people kind of take control of their own community and they call themselves the Dalits. And this wasn't supposed to be or interpreted by them as being something disparaging. But when Europeans come in, they interpret <clears throat> that word to mean depressed. Like these people are sad. Mm. These people are the depressed ones. Mm. When that really wasn't true at all. Like we might not understand that. No. But that Just tell us our history for us. Wasn't. People, please. Yeah. White people. Please white White, please. Tell us. Or, tell us how we feel. By the way, now that <laughs> oh, white explaining yeah, has come up. <laughs> Yeah, okay. we have some cause for celebration. I, I wasn't going to say great news. <laughs> so, it's not like good it's news. Not, yeah. it's you guys not... want me to explain this to you then? <laughs> no, sorry. No, you actually don't no, get to talk. You don't get to talk. <laughs> you don't get to talk <laughs> whatsoever. We have four people in this room. Four. Four. four two, count them. One, two, Juan, three, uno, four, dos, tres, cuatro. One of them. One of them <laughs> is not of Latin descent. Not the of rest, Latin descent. The rest and of the us three are. of us. The three remaining people are. And this we is, <laughs> camera. <on me>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've basically said this is what America is going to look like <laughs> in another twenty years. So it, just let us have our moment, guys. We I never mean, get to be the majority. I, oh, we it feels never so good. It's so fun. Somewhere wow. in my home right now, Spencer Stringer's like running around, <laughs> fist bumping himself. Right. Like, this is right really now. great. I'm glad we had that moment. Okay. Censors <laughs> threatening to. I know how to get it back up. Retaliation. Thanks, man. So that's an exposition on the caste system and the deletes because this concept of Dharma, which is something that leads to the caste system, is going to be very important in understanding, to me, the more beautiful part of what this really is intended to mean. One of the one of the not so beautiful parts. My screen just went black. I hope he did that on purpose. Oh that my! Was a joke. Spencer, you're delayed. <laughs> one of the not I'm so taking beautiful your laptop next time you get off track. I'm sorry, it's so distracting. <laughs> one of the not so beautiful parts about this is that, and you won't be surprised to hear this. There has been a color element to the caste system throughout the years, and so India, like the United States, has struggled to create a space that is not discriminatory toward people because of darker skin. And so what you saw in the caste system as Indo-Aryans and Dravidians have mixed and you've had this you know, mix of people who have a variety of skin colors is that oftentimes 
people with darker skin colors were put in subclasses and uh, and were discriminated against. And that even in that culture, lighter skin and colorism has been. And that's how many years issue. ago? Well, it's been their entire existence. Yeah, if that's. You want to know. I mean, even in our family growing up, like our cousins would give shit to the darkest cousins. Like, and that's in the 90s. Like, what even is this? It's so. What even is this? Like, how does that happen? How, how does that ever start (laughs) i don't have any idea it's so weird to think about but like even as kids they would give me so much shit for how dark i would get in the summer and i remember being so self-conscious about it because the darker you get yeah because they're yeah just mean about it just so mean it's so odd to me so odd to me thanks for burning up the vibe in here (laughs) (laughs) now everyone's depressed (laughs) sorry guys (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay, so let's talk about how these, how this theology plays out and, and how we see it play out. There are several epics, and the way that Hinduism like unfolds its theology is so diverse. It's through idols, it's through painting, it's through epic narratives, and one of the epics among all epics is the Mahabharata. And this is an epic story that is, I, I said last week, like the, the longest poem, not just in the world, but like in the history of the world. And this story is a story about two competing families for power. I mean, it's always about money or I power. Mean, yeah, money I, and power, money or just look power. At, just read the Old Testament, right? It's, it's two competing families vying for power, but it's got all these stories of like intrigue that are relationship-based that also carry an explanation of dharma and moksha and kama. And so they take those concepts and they put them in stories, which I would tell you has been done in the Old Testament as well. And, And that's how you kind of learn what all of this means, right? That's how it becomes relevant to you because... The mythology in Hinduism isn't seen as a bad thing. It's seen as a way to understand how these things come into play. This is another really long epic, and this is the Ramayana. The Ramayana is a story that literally means the life of Rama. And Rama is a prince who ends up having to leave his city, and then he travels with his wife. His wife ends up getting kidnapped by the antagonist in this play, and then He rescues his wife and he comes back to the city. But I mean, we're all telling like the same stories and we're trying to explain the same things. It's just different colors and different smells and different vibes. Um, And then we have the Kama Sutra, which I I just wanted to make tonight about the Kama Sutra. But Ben Ben suggested we needed to talk about everything else. It was it took me a while to find a picture that we could use. There are none. And the one you got was great. I love that. It is beautiful. I don't know that it's actually for the <laughs> it's Kama just the Sutra. least explicit picture that was found. <laughs> yeah. So, and most of us in the West grow up hearing this 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 word, 
this book title and we yeah. think it's just it's if just like you a even sex hear book. it if you even are introduced to the yeah if anyone would even tell you that it exists <laughs> exactly well sutras are like this 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 lyrical way of giving you know concise statements so the buddhist sutras are a series of statements about buddhist philosophy the kama sutra are sutras about kama remember we talked about these four principles that are prevalent in hinduism and they do talk about sexual relationship. They do talk about intimacy. But there's also like this prevailing narrative and ethic in this book that is about not just relationship between people, but the relationship between humanity and divinity. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. It's more explicit than, than how we roll in, in the West. But there are parts of the Bible that are also very, I don't know if I would call them erotic, but they they compare, um, they use language to describe our relationship to God that is in a way very loving mm-hmm. and at times borders on that, whether you think of something being the, the people being the bride of Christ or Christ being, you know, the church being the bride of Christ. This this relationship component doesn't evade any. So wait, is the Kama element. Sutra uh, like they talk about? It's talking also about your connection with higher power, or it's talking? It's well, it would depend on who you ask, but oh, I would okay. say yes, right? That this is, is it not included just... in when you're studying Hinduism? Like that's part of religious well, text. Shy like everywhere depends on who your parents are. Okay, I suppose. but we don't have right. anything like that in for. Do we? No. No, we have nothing like that. We don't have anything. We like have this. literally nothing about one of the most like human parts of you. Well, uh, purity rings. We, we have purity, purity rings. rings. <laughs> Good point. We have purity rings, which is yeah. We tend a, to go the other direction. It's a rejection. It's a resistance to this whole part of humanity. But I'll tell you, they have the same struggle in um, Indian society, and I think if Kirsten's out there, she could probably comment on this with more experience than any of us. Oops. Um, again. They. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Everywhere you go, every religion, every culture is struggling between the idea of accepting and embracing human intimacy and being scared to death of it and rejecting it and pushing it back. But I think even this existing is just still like... Revolutionary? Yeah. Well, this, this whole tradition is much more embracing of... They're saying Song of Solomon. And, What's this? Is yes. this erotic? Is this uh, called liter? Liter? Yeah. I didn't. I didn't mention it, but Morgan's right. The Song of Solomon probably comes the closest to talking about loving and intimacy and relationship, and using that in a way that is connected to divinity, divinity to humanity, humanity to humanity, and it ain't the Kama Sutra, but it yeah. probably is an example of what. Of just reminding us, like we're all, we find it important. There's, there's no culture that doesn't find it interesting. Okay. And struggle with it. Um, and then we come to the Bhagavad Gita, and I'm going to show you. This is my copy. It's cold in here. Of the Bhagavad Gita. It's smaller than I would have imagined it to be. It's a section out of the Mahabharata, and it is probably the most popular piece of Hindu literature on the planet. Among Hindus, among non-Hindus, this is, for lack of a better description, the gospel of Hinduism. It's shorter. It 
contains teachings about all these elements in a concise way. It's interesting. Krishna has kind of a Jesus-type element to him. There's this kind of element to him. And this is a conversation that occurs between a warrior, Arjuna, and Krishna, who's perceived to be an avatar of God. And Arjuna is going to go into battle against his family. He's going to be fighting against his friends and his family for what he thinks is right. And Krishna is his charioteer. We don't know that Krishna is God in this um, epic, in this story, until he finally reveals himself. He's just a servant of Arjuna. But then he reveals himself to have a conversation with Arjuna about what's happening And he gives him instruction on things like dharma, on kama, on karma, on moksha. And so it's this very concise story that helps you understand what, in Hinduism, God has to say about these things in a space that seems, you know, that makes it relevant to people. And they can apply it. I took the liberty of taking some sections out of this and comparing it with our own Bible. So when you look at this slide right here, you can see there's a quote from Krishna out of the Bhagavad Gita. And one of the things he talks about is his view or relationship with humanity. He says, I see my children of the world, all living beings, with equal eye and without partiality. Which is interesting because many places in the Bible, including Matthew 5, 45, Talk about how God sees us in the same way, that Yahweh sees us. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the righteous and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Another section of this, many sections of this book, talk about the ethic, right, that you're supposed to live with in connection with your brothers and sisters and how you're supposed to live. And Krishna says at one point, such a one, he's talking about someone who's doing it right, such a one excelleth in wisdom to such an extent that he regardeth both friends and enemies, aliens and countrymen, saints and sinners, the righteous and unrighteous, with equal love and sense of brotherhood. Now, you don't have to stretch your mind at all to know that this ethic is the same thing expounded upon by Christ, by Paul, and in the Old Testament. Yeah. In Matthew 5, in Romans 12, in Leviticus 27, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, contribute to the needs of saints, extend hospitality to the strangers, help the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. Yeah, we're saying the same thing. Same kind of message repeated over and over. Now, this is one of the things that the Bhagavad Gita emphasizes to Krishna in his story. And I've got a quote here in which Krishna Krishna is trying to explain to Arjuna that even though he doesn't want to go forward with what has been put in front of him, that Krishna feels like it's his dharma to do it. And Krishna says at one point in this book, he who worketh to his best 
in the line of his duty, and then offereth his work and labor and duty as a sacrifice to the absolute spirit, from which proceedeth all the principles of nature, life, and the universe, and from which is spread out the universal life in all of its forms and shapes and degrees of manifestation. He that worketh and who performeth his duty in that spirit, verily I say unto thee, that man obtaineth perfection by reason of such service and sacrifice. Very similar to Christ's teachings, Paul's teachings What's he saying? of acceptance and submission. He's saying that you find perfection by taking what life has put in front of you, by taking your dharma, your responsibility to family, to community, to workplace, to friends, to finding that so important that you continue, even when you're uncertain, even when you don't know, even when things seem hard, that you're here to live out, right, in sacrifice to other people, to live your dharma. And if you live what God has given you, if you accept this, and you just play it out as best you can, then you're doing everything you can. You're offering what you can by being here for those around you. I like the sentiment of it, but you know I don't like responsibility to other people. I do know. I do, I do know that. I'll leave it at that. Well, let me give you a little okay. bit of a Western approach to this. Has anybody out there ever seen the movie The Legend of Bagger Vance? I know we're, we're a little... Um, like we run behind in the comments, but this this movie has Matt Damon, Will Smith, and Charlize Theron in it. So just for that reason, it's worth watching. But this movie was reportedly inspired by the story Matt of Damon, he's so the Bhagavad Gita. Young. I know, look at him, right, babe, <laughs> babe for sure. He's probably like my age. He's old now. But this guy is a golfer. And he has to go off to war. I think it's the First World War because the Depression is in effect sometime after he gets back. Um, but he goes to war. He comes back. He's kind of lost his mojo. And Will Smith shows up in his life to help encourage him, bless you, to continue to play, to continue to follow his dharma. And there's this point where Will Smith is talking to a kid who is going to help him caddy. For Will Smith, for um, for Matt Damon, and he tells this boy inside each and every one of us is one true, authentic swing. Now he's talking about golf, but he's not talking about golf, right? Something we were born with, something that is ours and ours alone, something that can't be taught to you or learned, something that's got to be remembered over time. The world can rob us of that swing. It can get buried inside of us under all of our would-haves, could-haves, and should-haves. And some people forget what that swing is like. So don't worry about hitting the ball or where it's going to go. You can't make the ball go in the hole. You have to let it. So just keep swinging that club until you're a part of the whole thing. And so one of the ideas behind Dharma is that you, you find it in the release 
of your desire to be all of these things outside of your dharma. Okay, just be present. This is why the practice of yoga and meditation becomes important because people are trying to empty themselves right. of these desires to mm -hmm. go chase all of this shit outside of what they think God has actually put right in front of them mm -hmm. and to find their path. This is a synopsis of that movie right here. What I'm talking about is a game, Will Smith says, and he's kind of Krishna in this movie. A game that can't be won. It can only be played. Yeah. That is a very Western Hollywood synopsis of Hinduism. It's a good one, honestly. I mean, It is a good one. And here's how I want to end tonight. For a lot of us, we would say, well, that's great for them, but it's not our path. And I totally understand that. I am a Christ follower. Let's not I'm be confused. Let's not be confused about that. <laughs> I, 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 I don't Turns have out any, I am. I, well, I probably think of Christ differently than some other people. Totally. I, oops, sorry about that. The S. <laughs> I am a Christ follower. What Hinduism would tell you is that if you say you're a Christ follower, and not Hindu, right? You're still Hindu. That's okay. You're still, it's still my God. It's yeah. still our God. Because within the Bhagavad Gita, there's this part where Krishna is like, it doesn't matter how you come to me. You're always coming to me. Mm -hmm. There's no way of getting around it. So you can offer yourself in different ways. You can see me in different ways. I love this part of it. But you're always still coming to me. It's still, and it doesn't, but also, yeah, you're still doing it. In Hindu tradition, there is this story about the blind men and the elephant. Have you ever heard of this before? Mm -hmm. This is our last piece. So the story in Hindu tradition is that these blind men encounter this elephant. And each one of them is feeling a different part of the elephant. So one of them, you can see in this picture, is describing like the tail, the other one the body. The other one, the tusks. The other one, the trunk. So each of these men is describing something that's completely different than the other man. Mm. So they all get the impression that it's something different, that they each have something different. When really they're all touching the elephant. They're just touching a different part of the elephant. And so one of them... You can see in this next illustration, you know, might see God as fierce like a spear or angry like a cobra or something that gives this. relief like a fan or something strong like an oak tree or um, a brick, right? I love this because it represents all the different manifestations. That's exactly how they would say it. Yeah. It's not just like, this is it. This is what you should get from this. It's like, you could get really all of these different things from this. It's interesting because when you have conversations with Christians, one of the things that Christians will always bring to the table is, but what about Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the light, and that no one comes to the Father but by me? I think that many Hindus would respond and say, yeah, that's right. He, he's right. Nobody gets to the father but by the elephant, right? But you got the tusk. <laughs> you think that when he says nobody gets to the father but by me, 
that door is narrow when it's actually wide. The narrow door that he talks about in other places is something is something else. Mm-hmm. It's actually love. It's actually service and submission. Mm-hmm. It's following your dharma. So follow Christ, hundred percent. They have idols to Christ. They, they they there are people who worship. We looked at a book last week written by a, a Swami about Matthew five, mm-hmm. the Beatitudes. They mm-hmm. would say hundred percent, man, hundred percent. Yeah. And I love You don't want to worship anybody but Christ? Absolutely. Yes. We'll meet you there. You'll still find God. We'll meet you there. I feel like the venues does a really good job about that, too. I'm biased, but... I hope so. (laughs) All right, it's 7.38, so John's going to win. John already won. Yeah, no, John won. My (laughs) last... Morgan says I have 25 minutes. I wish. I mean, I would do... I would talk to you guys all night. I'd actually read your comments all night. Oh, Karina. This is a quote from the Bhagavad Gita that I'm going to finish with tonight that talks about this kind of open invitation that Hinduism at its core offers to people. Um, Again, and I I don't say that because I'm Hinduism or I want anybody to convert. I just want you to, to know how this exists. And I hope that it allows you to take a perspective that might let you see God Bigger than you saw God an hour ago. Well, an hour and nine minutes ago. And Krishna says this. He says, the faith of each man is a reflection of that man's nature. That in which each has faith is the essence of that man himself. Each man's God, his conception of deity, is himself at his best, magnified to infinity. Likewise, his evil spirit or devil is but himself at his worst, magnified to infinity. By one's deities shalt thou know the man himself, if thou observest well. Oh, I love that. That actually reminds me of, which I know you didn't finish, Untamed by Glennon Doyle, but she talks about your knowing and her knowing it's kind of the idea of sinking and just yeah and she talks about how even you know people will tell her all the time like you're just getting to know yourself you're just talking to yourself and it's like even if it is myself that i'm that's okay i'm stoked yeah i'm stoked even if it is just myself i think it's interesting to read that and think maybe when we when we think about ourselves and and when we look around us, the God that's being worshipped says more about us, the God that's being followed, the God that's being taught, says more about us than it could ever say about God. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we open and provide a generous space here for people to find God. Thank God. That's all. This was fun. I liked Hinduism. I would do Hinduism every week. <laughs> well, <we're> gonna, <laughs> What's that say about me? <laughs> we're gonna do we're gonna do Hind, what some people would call Hinduism light. Uh, um next I'm week. Sorry guys, they're shaking their heads. Guys pounding the mic. <laughs> That's why we muted. Because 
<laughs> Next week we start Buddhism. Woohoo! So, I'm so I'm stoked about that too. I'm, I'm super, just as stoked as about that. Super stoked. About okay, that. well it's 7:41. That's not too bad. We're so glad you were here with us tonight. Hopefully the drinking game didn't um, get you too far off kilter. Um, <laughs> Thanks for joining us tonight, guys. We love you, and we'll see you next Thursday. Love you guys. Have a good night.